Full Stack Journey is sponsored by Datadog, the SaaS monitoring and security platform enabling full stack observability for developers, IT operations, security, and business teams in the cloud age. Learn more about Datadog by signing up for a free two-week trial at datadoghq.com slash fullstackjourney. And you'll also receive a free t-shirt. datadoghq.com slash fullstackjourney. morning, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. Welcome back to the Full Stack Journey podcast, where we talk about the ongoing evolution of the IT professional. Thanks so much for listening. I am your host, Scott Lowe, and my goal today, as always, is to help equip and prepare listeners for their journey of learning across the full stack of technologies that are present in today's data centers and cloud environments. Today's show is a multi-guest show, similar to those that we've done in the past. And what I have today is two guests who are joining me to discuss the idea or the topic of adopting tools and technologies from the discipline of software development in other IT disciplines. For example, let's say you're a sysadmin or you're a network engineer or you're a storage engineer. Are there particular tools or techniques or thought processes that apply mostly to software development that you should also consider adding to your own skill set? Tools that you should probably possibly incorporate into your toolkit of things that you do. And so I'm very excited to see uh, what our guests have to say today. So let's jump right in with the first guest. All right. So the first guest we have on the show today to talk about our topic of pulling tools and techniques from the field of software development into your own discipline and making them your own and adapting your workflows to accommodate these new tools and techniques is Kurt uh, Seafried. Kurt, how are you doing today? Very well, thank you. Thanks for being on the show, Kurt. Uh, before we get into our topic, why don't you take a moment and introduce yourself? You know, tell listeners you know who you are, what your background is. So I've been doing Linux security since about 1998 when I realized my computer could connect to anything on the internet and thus anything on the internet could connect to me. And I didn't really care for that. Um, and so since then, yeah, I've focused on Linux security, moved into cloud security. I'm now with the Cloud Security Alliance. Uh, and I also do the open source uh, secu security podcast with Josh Bressers uh, every week. Awesome. Thanks, Kurt. We'll include links to the podcast in the show notes so that if listeners want to start listening to your podcast, they can do so. So thanks for sharing that. So, Kurt, we're, we're talking about the idea of pulling tools and techniques and practices from the discipline of software development and pulling those into other IT disciplines. So IT disciplines that are traditionally considered not software development, you know, storage, sysadmin, uh, you know, networking, those kind of things, right? And we're thinking about and, and, and kind of pondering the question, are there tools and techniques that folks should consider taking from the realm of software development and making those part of their own skill set? Are there tools or techniques that will make them more effective or more efficient in what they do? Um, is it a matter of, you know, adopting tools that enhance their automation or allow them to do things more quickly or that give them a record of what happened or, you know, who knows, right? The world is constantly changing, uh, you know, automation and such are, are becoming more and more common. And 
folks are being asked to do more with less, right? And uh, so they have to find ways to sort of multiply their their abilities. So in your mind, uh, from from your perspective, are there you know two or three things that are traditionally considered software development centric tools or techniques that other disciplines should consider adding to their repertoire? So I would say probably the top two or three things would be uh, version control uh, and its close cousin ticketing systems. And the, the biggest reason I would say is that because they enable collaboration. The, the reality is in IT and, and most of life now, we've solved a lot of the easy problems. Like there's very few problems left in the world that one person can just kind of think about for a few hours and come up with a really good solution for, right? Virtually every problem that's interesting is also really complicated and more often than not actually cross-discipline, right? Like I look at IT now, like, sure, I can stand up an email server, but you want me to tune your database? Like, uh, good luck with that. Like you're gonna have to find a database admin. And so ticketing systems, obviously, and version control also give you institutional memory, right? So if Bob gets hit by a bus or leaves, you don't lose all that immediately. And that is critical too, because, you know, like right now in our ticketing system, I think I have like 300 tickets open. I don't remember most of them, right? Like anything past, like, before lunch is just the like, eh, it basically doesn't exist in my head. Um, so especially because these tools, they enable collaboration, that institutional memory. And when they're used correctly uh, with a bit of discipline, you know, and structure and actually documenting things, you essentially gain benefits you can't otherwise get, right? Like you, you have to write stuff down and share it for it to be real. Otherwise, if that person leaves the company or forgets, it's gone forever. Okay, so your top two are version control and ticketing systems. Uh, now, version control, uh, I totally expected that answer. Um, you know, ticketing systems, I didn't expect, but let's let's talk about version control real quick first. So um, version control, typically we're talking about Git. I think we can all agree that Git is fairly ubiquitous, pretty, you know, widespread, uh, pretty used in lots of different places. Uh, maybe you consider it the de facto solution, whatever. There are others, but largely we're talking about Git here. And the benefits of using something like Git for version control are, are fairly well known, fairly well understood. We're talking about you know being able to track the changes to something over time, see who made the changes because you know there are users associated with particular commits. Being able to roll back if you needed to do that, if you made a change and the change doesn't work, you want to roll back to a, you know last known good or previous commit sort of thing. You can do that. Uh, so, you know, there's there's lots of things you can do with Git but, uh, and, and, and other version control systems, but all those are, are reasonably well understood. I guess what I would like to know before we finish up our discussion on version control, are there other reasons that folks should be considering adopting version control in their discipline? Like, are there other benefits that users should consider as this is why I should be thinking about version control? Well, there's, there's some really subtle things, and, and Git is really good at enabling some of these. Um, so for example, branches, right? Okay, branches, you know, you can work on a branch, you don't basically stomp all over somebody else's work while you're doing an experimental feature. But more importantly, with branches, you can have some experimental work that maybe doesn't pan out. Okay, but it doesn't go away. It's not gone. Like, it's, you know, I'm reminded always in science, how many people do experiments, fail to replicate results, and then that data just kind of disappears. Well, that's actually kind of important data. So for example, 
um, having, okay, we tried this algorithm in the code and oh my God, it was terrible and it was slow and it broke this and this and this. That's actually kind of really useful to know because number one, don't do that again, or maybe do it again later if it works for different reasons. Um, and number two, it you know, can help guide you as to what might work or what will work. And so again, it's that that institutional memory of like, what have we done in the past that worked or didn't work? And one of the things that always drives me nuts is people don't do a lot of post-mortem analysis of their decisions. Specifically, they will when a decision fails, right? Like a plane crashes, we post-mortem it because we don't want that to happen again. But especially when people are successful, they rarely look at the decisions that led up to that and go, were we successful because of the decisions we made or did we just get lucky? Is this reproducible? And one thing that get helps there is, yeah, if you get to this point and get bisect is amazing for this. Like you get, you get to a problem. Oh, well, let's get bisect and see where things went wrong or where they went right. And you can, you know, nail down these corner cases. You can find, you know, I love when people are like, Oh, um, it's somewhere, you know, at some point in the last 300 and some odd thousand commits, something weird happened. That's like what 17 or 18 get bisect operations it takes like five minutes on a laptop. All right. That's magic. And so being able to look at like 300,000 commits and trace down where a security vulnerability was actually introduced by having a test case and, you know, doing 17 or 18 or whatever bisects and have a concrete answer in five minutes. I mean, 20 years ago, that, that just was not physically possible. Okay. All right. So uh, the idea of storing branches, that's a, that's a really good idea of something I think probably often overlooked. We talk about, the value of how, how you can use a branch to to do work and sort of, you know, make that throwaway work. Like if it doesn't work, we can just throw it away. But the idea of keeping a branch around, I think, is something else. And I, I have to admit, I, I had not considered that particular use case of like keeping a branch, even if it was unsuccessful, and then being able to say, OK, we're going to come back to this later after we've learned more about the problem or learned more about the tools or the framework that we're using, whatever the case may be. And then we're going to try again, or even keeping it long-term and saying, Hey, look, if you're thinking about going down this path of doing X, whatever that is, be sure to go look at this branch first, because this is a failed experiment that we tried and, and it didn't work. And so save yourself some time of, you know, doing the same thing all over again, look at this branch, learn from that, you know, try again. Right. So that's, mm -hmm. that's actually a really good idea. And, and as you pointed out, it helps build that institutional memory, which is so, so important um, in, a, in an environment where, you know, you are, you are dealing with turnover and losing employees and that sort of thing, right? Um, you don't want that knowledge like going out the door. Um, but I'm, I'm really, really intrigued by the second item that you mentioned in your top mm -hmm. two list. You mentioned version controls and then you mentioned, or version control, and then you mentioned ticketing systems. And, yeah. and ticketing systems intrigues me. Like I, I think of ticketing systems as like a, a necessary evil, they absolutely are. And they're in my mind, they're a necessary evil for two big reasons. Number one, I, I have a terrible memory, right? Like I literally have uh, in my OmniFocus, my personal OmniFocus, I have over 500 projects, right? I don't want to have that in my head. And number two, ticketing systems encourage, and if used correctly again, what did you actually mean? Not what did you say, but what did you mean? So like I, perfect example um, I saw a feature that was asked for a website and the URL was supposed to be uppercase and the developer did it as lowercase thinking it didn't really matter. And well, depending on your web environment, it may or may not be case sensitive. Uh, so great example, uh, Cloudflare exam, uh, is actually non-case sensitive. 
but some backend web platforms like well everything that's Linux is case sensitive. And so they implemented this feature and it well it didn't work when it was used with capitals as intended. And of course, you know, well, okay, they asked for capitals, they were given lowercase. So that wasn't made clear. And more to the point, that they accepted the lowercase. So the devs like, well, I, close enough, right? And of course, you know, in the postmortem, I'm like, well, case matters, and either we make this absolutely all case insensitive or we have to be more careful with this. And more to the point, as part of the postmortem, we need to be more careful, you know, when you specify a feature and when you accept what the devs built to actually, like, did they build what you wanted? Right. And I think ticketing again, because also people have asked me, like, wh why is this person on this email list? Or why is this account set up this way? Or why, like, why do we have this service? And I'm like, I have no idea. Let me check the ticket system. Oh, like the so-and-so asked me to do this on this date for this reason. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. Right. I remember now. Okay. I, th I think I kind of see where you're going here, but let's, let me ask this question. So when you, when you talk about mm -hmm. ticketing systems or when you say ticketing systems, what are we, what are we talking about here? Like when we talk about version control, we are often talking about Git because, you know, Git is everywhere. And yes, there are other version control systems, but typically it's, it's Git or GitHub and GitLab, you know, so on and so forth. Right. But with ticketing systems, like what, what are we talking about here? What, what kind of products or projects are you, are you thinking of? Uh, well, uh, I went with Jira about 10 years ago because it was the least worst option. And to be blunt, all ticketing systems are terrible, right? Like at Red Hat, we used Bugzilla as a, because, well, it had over a million bugs in it. You can't transition out of that. It's, you're stuck with it. Um, there was a whole bunch of tooling wrapped around it. It was used as a message bus, essentially, within the company. So it's just, you can't replace it. Uh, same thing for Jira. Like once you're in Jira, all your tickets are in Jira, you're stuck with Jira. Sorry, that's how it works. Um, we're actually transitioning to a different product uh, called Airtable, which is more like a spreadsheety type thing, but kind of doesn't really do ticketing. So the actual ticketing will be in Zendesk. Um, to put it bluntly, everything I've ever tried and used and evaluated is terrible. It's it's just, it's a really disturbingly hard problem. Um, when you look at how different everybody's needs are and your options are you basically go with say Zendesk and just kind of do it their way and force your workflow to fit their solution or like Red Hat, you run a bugzilla, you customize the heck out of it. And then you have this custom bespoke monstrosity that runs slow. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So, you know, something like Jira or something like that. Right. So uh, I think that most people would agree that the value of a ticketing system for a team or a group of indiv individuals it's pretty clear. Um, you mentioned mm -hmm. earlier collaboration is a big thing these days because we've gotten to the point in IT where we often have to work in teams. We we can't solve yeah. it alone. We have to cross disciplines. We have to cross silos. We have to work in multidisciplinary teams. You know, the problem can't be solved just by the sysadmin, but also requires the database admin and, you know, the networking engineer or the security professional, whatever the case may be, right? Uh, but I'm, I'm, I always try to focus on giving the listeners like practical real actionable advice and something they can take away and apply to their own careers, their own jobs, whatever the case may be. And so I have to ask about sort of, you know, what, what about the solo practitioner? Like how does someone in that role embrace something like JIRA or its equivalent in their own personal workflows? I mean, as someone who is, you know, responsible for my own individual development, you know, what are we talking about when we talk about having an individual embrace a ticketing system 
for you know their own to become to make themselves more effective or more 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 efficient. Are we talking about like adopting or implementing a form of project management for your own tasks or something else? Help me help me understand. Well, if you're interacting with external people, a ticketing system would be a big help because it gives you a, it gives you a structured way to communicate with them. Um, if it's just for yourself, like I use OmniFocus, it's, you know, David Allen, GTD, he recommends OmniFocus. I looked into it years ago and was like, yep, this is the one for me. And I honestly do kind of use OmniFocus like an internal ticketing system with myself, but only for stuff that only I deal with. If it, the moment it has to deal with something external, then OmniFocus just breaks. Doesn't, it doesn't do that. Um, I don't like personally use a ticketing system. Um, obviously at work, we use ticketing systems. Um, but even something, if it's just a spreadsheet or something, just writing it down makes it real. And part of it too, is I find a lot of people ask a question. I'm like, okay, it's clear to me that you, you do have some sort of need or want, but you're not clear on it. So let's force you to write it down and really think it through. Kind of ideally actually define, like, what is the real question you have? Because a lot of people come to me, I want you to do this. And I'm like, that, that doesn't sound right. Like, I don't think that's what you actually want me to do. Like, what is what do you actually want to accomplish? Oh, you want to accomplish that? Yeah, no, no, no. We're, we're going to do it this way, the easy way, the better way. Oh, cool. Great. Done. Um, and the biggest thing is with ticketing systems and source code comments, why? Don't like, in theory, code is, this is how this works. That's, that's the point of code. It tells the computer how to make it work. But the why, why did you choose this algorithm? Why did you do this? Why? Why? Um, and it can be something as simple as like, well, my, my manager told me to. And here's a link to the email thread, or it can be something very subtle. Like we've had, I, like I've had tickets that took like two months to resolve. Cause I had to spend two months thinking about like, what do we really want? Why, why are we really doing this? And in one case it was like, okay, we need to get rid of this one technology and go to a completely different technology because, well, yeah, it's just, it's a dead end. Oh, like we can't fix this. It's time to move to a new thing. Yeah. Okay. So I got you. Right. So what we're really talking about here is, is, you know, you're, you're an individual, you're working in a typical, you know, corporate IT environment, you know, you're in a particular IT discipline, whatever that is, and your organization has a, a ticketing system, uh, whatever that might be, Zendesk, Jira, you know, whatever, it doesn't matter. Uh, and what, what you're recommending here is really sort of leaning into that ticketing solution, right? Rather than, than fighting it and being like, oh man, okay, fine, I'm just going to go in here and, you know, mark this as complete, but like really use it, really use that system to capture not only the decisions that were made and the tasks that were completed, but also, as you mentioned, the rationale behind those decisions or those tasks, as well as even the mm -hmm. rationale behind tasks that weren't undertaken for whatever reason, right? Um, maybe the decision was made to not go down a particular path because of mm -hmm. other, you know, factors, right? And documenting why your team decided not to go down that path um, can at times be just as important as documenting documenting why you did go down a particular path. So you're recommending listeners sort of lean into it instead of fighting yeah. it, right? Don't resist it. Make the most of it. Make it really, really useful. Um, and and in, that, in that sort of respect, I think mm -hmm. about this as like a giant shared logbook that records what the team um, does or did as well as what the team didn't and why yeah. those things were or were not done. Yeah. And even more importantly, and GTD goes into this is, Unless you know everything you're doing, you can't say no to new things or more commonly, yes, I can do that. But what do you want me to not do instead of that? Um, and so, for example, I know locally, like the Edmonton Police Service uses a ticketing system because it boils down to you have finite resources and probably more 
need of those resources than you have. So you have to prioritize, right? So we're going to prioritize like, you know, very bad crime and lost kids over like uh, my neighbor's dog is barking again or whatever. Um, and that's the other aspect of ticketing systems is it gives you metrics. It gives you like literally at the CSA, we're like, oh, we, we need to hire some more support people because <laughs> these guys are, I checked it. Uh, yeah, these two guys have done like 18,000 tickets. And I'm like, wow, that's a lot of tickets. Like we need to hire some more people to help them. But that's a crazy number. And with the ticketing system, you know, we can we can say definitively that, oh yeah, this needs more resourcing or this needs to be a priority or we shouldn't even be doing that. It's a giant waste of time, you know, um, because for example, we're also essentially matching revenue to the tickets to say like, basically, let me put it this way. It makes no sense to sell something for $500 and then spend $5,000 supporting it. And I, I see companies doing stuff like that all the time where they spend a lot of time and effort on a product, but they don't actually kind of measure it. And so they might actually not be making a lot of money out of that profit if they're burning people out internally supporting it or whatever. And that's an, another ugly elephant in the room is, is metrics. And like, I know people hate metrics because, you know, spreadsheet driven MBAs do terrible things to companies for metrics to improve the numbers. But fundamentally, I, I think we can all agree we have finite resources, usually not enough resources. So we need to figure out how to allocate them most efficiently in the best way. And you can't do that without some structured data. You're just guessing. Yeah. Okay. That, that makes sense. I mean, we have to be able to measure something in order to understand, you know, what it is or what it isn't. And um, so having metrics is, is incredibly useful. I think when we, as IT professionals, when we rail about metrics, it's, it's usually because there are too many metrics or too many of the wrong metrics. Right. But um, that's an entirely different episode that, or entirely different topic that could be its own podcast episode. Well, be careful what you measure. Cause that's what people optimize for because that's my bonus. Oh yeah. You're, you're, you're totally right there. I mean, there's that old saying about how compensation drives behavior. So, you know, whatever you're measuring and compensating on, that's what, uh, you know, folks are going to do. That's what's going to drive their behavior. So, um, okay. Right. I, I could, I can now see the value and, and why you recommended really leaning into the ticketing system and taking advantage of it instead of, you know, sort of being reluctant and not wanting to have to deal with the, the necessary evil. Right. But really making the most out of it, you know, capturing the the discussions around decisions and the relevant data, you know, links or Slack discussions or, you know, IRC or documents in, in Google Docs, whatever the case may be, but capturing all of that information, turning it into a system of record and just, you know, making the most out of it, right? Capturing uh, uh, not only the decisions that were made, but the decisions that weren't made and why those decisions were or, or weren't made, you know, make the most out of it. Um, so that's, that's really good. That makes sense. Um, I appreciate you bringing that up. I hadn't heard that recommendation before, so I'm, I'm really glad you brought it up. Um, but real quick, as we're getting ready to wrap up here, um, I want to ask you a question, get your thoughts on this. Uh, what is a recommendation that you hear from other people that you actually don't agree with um, in, this, in this sort of space? So when we talk about taking uh, software development-centric practices, tools, or techniques and adopting them outside of the software development discipline. And people will say, oh, you should do blah, you know? Um, what is something that you hear a lot like that, but you actually don't agree with? I, I have some of my own, but I'd really like to hear uh, your perspective on this. I think in general, at a high level, the majority of software practices, we have no data. Like, are these effective or not? So code audits. Uh, great example. Here's the Linux kernel. Here's a billion dollars. Code audit it. Would you bet your life that it's bug free? Of course not. 
how about $10 billion or a trillion dollars, right? Well, there's just not enough expertise in the world to code audit this thing correctly. Um, so I think code audits are one of those things. It's kind of like my front door. It has a lock on it because if I get robbed and make an insurance claim and I don't have a lock on my front door, my insurance company will laugh at me. Somebody can kick my door down. Somebody can put a brick through the window, right? The, the lock is effectively useless. And code audits, in my opinion, are sort of the same in that it's, it's like a bare minimum that you probably do need to do. But there, I guarantee you there's still security flaws and problems in that code. Um, so I think code audits are highly overrated, especially if you look at the smart contract world, right? These are not actually that large. They're generally, I'm making air quotes here, simple contracts. And yet, if you look at rec news, like there's a ton of audited contracts that got just, you know, just done sideways by an attacker for, you know, in some cases, tens or hundreds of millions of dollars. And so I don't know what the answer is, because on the one hand, I'm not going to say don't do code audits, because you do need to get the low hanging fruit. But they are definitely not the solution. And so what I would say, I think is the answer here is to, to plan for failure, like build for failure, right? Like engineering has been doing this for a long time. Okay, we need a cable to hold 2000 pounds, we're gonna use a cable that holds 3000 pounds, because when they manufacture it, they might make a, a mistake. And so if it's, you know, a little bit wrong, that'll be okay. You know, my understanding of the three gorges dam in China is they over-engineered by a factor of three to compensate for poor construction practices because they don't want the thing to fail. And so I think with software, a lot of that boils down to is plan for failure. And then how do you sort of minimize or, you know, like basically like having a spare tire. Um, great example, we're deploying YubiKeys at the CSA. Every user gets two YubiKeys because they're going to lose or destroy one at some point. And I don't want them being literally unable to work while they wait for a key to be drop shipped to them. It's like, no, we're just getting everybody two keys. All right. So if we if we take that and we translate it into a, a non-software development discipline, something like, you know, storage or, storage or networking or security, something like that, it won't be code auditing necessarily, although I suppose that code auditing might apply in scenarios like infrastructure as code or, or something like that, right? But I think what you're saying is it shouldn't just be about more configuration reviews or, or code reviews. Um, although those are definitely important because they help us catch mistakes or errors that we would have otherwise missed. Um, but instead, it should be about sort of, you know, design, architecture. Um, you know, how, how was this thing that you're putting in? How was it designed? Was it designed to, to account for spikes in utilization? Was it designed to account for the failure of components? And and how it will how will it react to various components failing? Was it designed for um, a couple of unintended you know, use cases, because we always find that whatever we put out there ends up getting used in ways that are different than what we initially anticipated, right? So have you accounted for that in your design? Um, you know, is that is that a, a fair representation of, of what you're saying? Yeah. And the challenge is that requires additional resourcing that is, a, is effectively wasted, right? Like just in time delivery one, because I don't have $50 million of inventory sitting in a warehouse depreciating. And the flip side of that is, again, it comes back to metrics and stuff like maybe it's okay to be down for a day or two. And for many people, maybe it's not like if you're running a nuclear reactor, you can't be like, eh, whatever, safety systems down, it'll, well, we'll fix it tomorrow. But um, for example, you know, oh, great example, Revenue Canada, they have twice now shut down their website, once for Heartbleed and once for Log4J, because they basically have a policy of if our website is potentially going to get hacked, we turn it off. Because here's the beauty, Revenue Canada has a very captive market, like you have to pay your taxes. That's it. Too bad. Like, and during uh, the Heartbleed, they literally shut the website down 
three days before the filing deadline. And we're like, yeah, it kind of sucks for everybody. Uh, we'll extend the deadline by a week and a half and you better pay. And so they can do that. Obviously not everybody like can do that, but I think a lot of companies and organizations have a lot more flexibility in sort of having these sort of very strong panic responses that will buy them more time and space to go deal with the problem in a much more sensible way. Cause like revenue Canada, they literally will shut down their website for three or four days. And I mean, can you imagine how not stressed out their admins are like they're dealing with log for J, but it's like, yeah, we turned the website off. You can't attack us. We're fine. We'll fix it when we fix it. You know, I, I kind of envy them, but I, I, like I said, I suspect a lot of companies, there are things like that, that they could do and kind of get away with. Um, probably not going to work so well for e-commerce sites because, you know, people go elsewhere. But in general, that that kind of planning for failure, you know, it it works and it gives it it's buying yourself space and time, especially during a crisis is that is a huge win. Got it. OK. All right. Thanks. That that makes a lot of sense. It's a, a good suggestion, you know, designing for failure and accounting for, uh, you know, spikes in utilization, whatever, you know, what we're talking about sort of gives you that room to, to take care of things if something goes wrong, right? Gives you some, some, some margin, some, some space to work on stuff. Uh, all right, Kurt, as we uh, wrap up our segment together, uh, would you like to, again, share your online contact information with our listeners? Uh, yeah, you can follow me on Twitter at Kurt Seyfried. Uh, and as I mentioned, I do the Open Source Security Podcast with Josh Bressers. And um, the big thing I'm working on right now is the Global Security Database, which is essentially an open source effort to uh, fix the vulnerability identifier ecosystem because uh, we need something better and new. Awesome. Very cool. That sounds, uh, sounds awesome. That sounds exciting. All right. Well, Kurt, thank you so much for being on the show and thank you for sharing your perspective on, um, you know, software development tools or practices that listeners who are not software developers who work in other IT disciplines should consider adopting in their own workflows. Thank you for having me. I interrupt this episode of Full Stack Journey for a quick message from Datadog, today's sponsor. Datadog is the SaaS monitoring and security platform for dev, ops, security, and every team in between. Datadog's platform allows you to correlate metrics, traces, logs, and security signals across all your applications, your infrastructure, and then third-party services, and they show it to you all in a single pane of glass. Datadog very probably works with what you've already got. There are over 500 vendor-backed integrations. Take these capabilities and then combine them with drag and drop dashboards and machine learning based alerts. That all is going to help teams troubleshoot and collaborate more effectively. And when everyone is working well together, that prevents downtime while enhancing performance and reliability. Try Datadog in your own environment. You can do it for two weeks for free. Sign up at datadoghq.com slash full stack journey. And you'll also get a free t-shirt. So one more time, that is datadoghq.com slash fullstackjourney for two weeks of free Datadog and a snazzy t-shirt. And now back to the podcast. The second guest joining me on the show today to discuss the idea of pulling in tools and techniques from the realm of software development into other disciplines is Adil Ahmad. Adil, how are you doing today? Hi, uh, Scott. How, how are you? I'm very well. Thank you very much. How are you? I am doing great. Thank you so much for asking. Uh, Adil, before we jump into our discussion, uh, why don't you take a moment and uh, introduce yourself to the listeners of the podcast, um, share your background, you know, kind of tell folks what you're doing these days. Sure, sure. Um, so um, uh, my name is Adil. I am a former network engineer. 
Um, I've been a, a network engineer by trade for a, a, a good part of a decade between 2005 and 2015. Around about 2014, I found my love for network automation and uh, I'd read the Phoenix, Pro- Phoenix Project at that time. And so I was really kind of passionate about how we can make a change in networking and how we can try and adapt to that and really move towards that movement of the, of the whole DevOps movement within the networking. The more I spent time in the, the whole say DevOps practices and wanting to bring those DevOps practices to network automation, um, that just pushed me away from networking altogether and more towards the cloud uh, and, and, and uh, uh, um, around kind of the whole cloud operating model and, and DevOps in itself. Um, so since uh, uh, since 2016, it's been a journey of being kind of making those transition. And today, um, I'm with HashiCorp, where I'm, I'm part of the professional services organization, uh, essentially trying to make this whole kind of target cloud operating model a reality for many enterprises. Awesome. Thank you, Adil. Appreciate uh, you taking a moment to tell us a little about yourselves. I think actually your experience and your, your background makes you uh, really well suited for our topic on the podcast today which is centered around this question or this idea about whether there are tools or techniques or practices in the realm of software development that other disciplines, other IT disciplines should consider adopting um, and you know, using in their own disciplines. So things like, you know, are there things that software developers do that storage engineers sh- should also think about doing? Or are there things that software developers do or tools that they use or practices that they follow that your network engineer should follow or sysadmin should follow or security professionals should follow, things like that, right? And so uh, from, from your perspective and your experience, your background, if you had to pick, uh, say, you know, two or three things from the area of software developer that uh, software development that non-developers should consider adopting and making part of their own skill set, what would what would those items be? Yeah, sure. Um, so it, it's funny because I uh, remember working for a, a, a in, in the past life, I worked for an organization uh, where I had to write a, a newsletter about the Network Engineer 2.0. And uh, the, the closing uh, points were there were about recommending some tools that, to get started. Um, so one of those uh, I, I emphasized a lot was on Git and essentially doing kind of version control and source code. Uh, given that um, the, the audience at the time was the network engineering audience, all configuration was just plain text. So even if it was just just plain text uh, configuration, get into the habit of using Git uh, to uh, really back, back up that uh, those configuration instead of or you should say rancid or something. Uh, so version control would be one of those. The other would be uh, essentially um, look at Terraform. I, I may be biased there coming from HashiCorp, but you know whether it's Terraform or Ansible or, or any other kind of config infrastructure as code in essence, right? Um, it's just get into the habit of looking at infrastructure as code. Um, especially uh, those that are more declarative, uh, it's a low barrier entry. Gotcha, gotcha. Okay, so let's let's dig into this a little bit and uh, focus on uh, the why. Let's 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 tell the listeners why you're recommending these things. I heard you mention um, Git, and you mentioned Terraform or or infrastructure as code, which could include other products that are in that space. You know, Ansible, Pulumi, et cetera, et cetera. Um, why don't we start with Git? You know, why should a non-software developer consider adding something like Git to their list of skills? What are the benefits they're going to see uh, from, from doing this? So I would argue that Git wouldn't be your principal objective, rather, given the industry and the time we're in, um, 
uh, and I, again, I'm going to come from a networking engineering, network engineering perspective, and, and and the same would apply for you know sysadmins and, and sysengineering, where most of the things that are moving towards infrastructure as code, and when we say code, inherently that comes with that are those software development practices such as Git and version control. Um, but I would go far, uh, go further beyond that. Is that Git in itself is ubiquitous, um, as, at least uh, at the beginning stages. I mean, if you're at the likes of Facebook or, or Google, maybe Git is not the version control that will be used. It will be a custom one, maybe, maybe. But I suspect by the time you're you've joined that, then you already know full well about what version control is. But um, you know, Git being ubiquitous around that means that every uh, tools are uh, every kind of Git form, such as GitLab or GitHub, are tools are that are used. Um, so, getting into the habit of uh, being able to really kind of commit your code, doing even good practices around, say, Git uh, commit messages and tracking all the configurations that you've done and having those versions. Um, and then having conventional messages around that as well. So, there are so many best practices even within Git like trunk-based development. I'm a big advocate of trunk-based development, for example. That promotes a number of other uh, kind of practices uh, such as the kind of agile or lean um, development practices that come with it as well. Um, being lean, uh, in essence, uh, I would say, you know, coming back to say, you know, your, to answer your question about why Git and, as opposed to anything else is uh, the ubiquity uh, being one of those, but it opens the doors to other practices that, really are, are towards that software development as well. All right. So you made a fair point there. We shouldn't focus too much on the technology, you know, so uh, adopting Git specifically isn't, isn't the end goal. That's not what we're shooting for here. It is a, a means to an end, shall we say, like what we really should be shooting for are sort of the follow on effects that come from adopting version control, right? So ad adopting version control is great. And it gives you these benefits of, you know, having, uh, you know, commits that show you the changes that were made and who made the changes and that sort of thing. But it's really these best practices that come after you've adopted Git that really offer the most benefit, things like writing descriptive and useful Git commit messages and adopting things like code reviews and, uh, you know, code comments and all these other things. These are these are the things that really offer the value. And, and they are they are a follow on to uh, adopting Git. Is that is that, you know, a reasonable way to to uh, paraphrase, you know, what, yeah. what you're saying? hundred percent. I, I, I want to, I'd like to add to that. Is that, I mean, so uh, immediate value that I can see if I was to kind of put myself you know, uh, seven, eight years ago as a network engineer, if I were, uh, and that team were to adopt Git, then it opens up or slowly breaks down silos as well. So as in like, then at which point other teams or software development teams have access to those network code that they can see, maybe not understand, but that's not the point. The point is that we're now on a single platform of some you know, version control maintenance. Okay, so you make a really good point there that I think may get overlooked. Um, and it's, it's not just about, uh, or not just pertaining to version control, but also um, starts to play into your second recommendation, which is around infrastructure as code. And that is that as teams begin to adopt version control, and then begin to adopt um, things like infrastructure as code, uh, which is, you know, declarative ways of managing infrastructure. And that could take a lot of different shapes and forms. It's not just Terraform or not just Pulumi, but it could be Ansible playbooks. It could be, you know, something else, right? Uh, you know, whatever. Uh, there's a lot of different forms there. Um, then these uh, tools, they become a, a mechanism 
that enable teams to communicate with one another using a, a semi-common language, right? Um, and that, that communication now encouraged across teams begins to offer a way to start to break down those silos and uh, encourage additional communication and collaboration across the typical boundaries of IT disciplines. Like, you know, like you're reviewing code that somebody wrote for infrastructure as code, and you may not understand what it is. And if you don't, then it gives you, you know, a, a vehicle to go to that person who wrote the code and say, hey, help me understand, you know, why this is happening this way. Or maybe you do understand it, right? And now you have insight as to, you know, what the challenges are that this particular team is trying to solve or, you know, whatever, whatever that case may be. But it, it offers a way to begin to break down those silos between uh, the various teams. 100%. And as I say, it, it, it's just, it, it's the, it's a, entry right as in this door entry to many opportunities that's just being one of those situational awareness in essence right is increasing that visibility um even as you say even if one doesn't understand it opens up even within github for example you have these comments that you can add you know in, in your code whether it's pull requests as well so even those code reviewers they don't necessarily need to understand but they have the opportunity to question the code to understand what's going on right right so i think i think you and i are in are in a, uh, you know a real agreement here um, and, and I think also we've sort of already answered the question of, you know, why infrastructure as code, it's, it is along with something like Git or a common version control process, it becomes a way to start the process of breaking down silos and, and it starts to begin to help to improve documentation. Like we have this uh, phrase here in the U S and I don't know if this phrase carries over outside the U S or not, but we, we use the, the phrase redheaded stepchild and we use that to describe something that always um, sort of gets pushed off to the side, ignored, um, you know, given given lower priority, right? Um, and, I, and I think that term can often be applied to the documentation that we as IT professionals so often don't write, right? Something else always takes priority over writing documentation. Some other task uh, becomes more important than us documenting what was done, why it was done, um, and how it was done. And uh, at least with infrastructure as code, you know, if you write the code to do something, you, you've at least got that, even if you have nothing else. That's spot on what you've just said there, right? Is that, you know, with infrastructure as code and, and then version control, inherently what comes with that is the, the other software development practices like code hygiene, code readability, right? Code reviews, uh, even, even, dare I say, pair, pair programming, right? And, and these, they may sound daunting uh, for someone who's beginning their journey, but... In, in reality, they may not realize it, but they probably already are pair programming. If, you're, if you've got VS Code Editor, both of you are looking at that code together, right? And especially with VS Code having those kind of sharing features, right? You're already pair programming, right? You may not realize it. So you're already adding these and adopting these practices. It's more about formalizing them. And, you know, adding, say, test-driven development, these then become... Uh, 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 the, the barrier entry to just test-driven development is now lowered. But I would argue, coming back to your documentation, is that this documentation-driven development as well, right? And having that in the form of code or even in the form of a readme file and understanding, even having, say, to-dos, right? adding those to-dos within your readme file or adding to-dos in your, in your code and comments, all of these help to give context. Yes, yes, absolutely. To totally agree. And, and so often that context is, is, is really, really important. And um, I don't know. I don't know why. I just I just thought about this, but I, I saw this this thing on Twitter this morning, and it was about automation. And um, this this uh, tweet or this picture that I saw this morning was saying that 
Automation was valuable, even if it was something you were only going to do, you know, once or twice. And the reason that it was valuable, even when you're only going to do something once or twice, is because it serves as a barrier against forgetting how it is you are supposed to do whatever this thing is, right? And uh, that resonated so much with me because I can I can really really speak to this about how I you know only do something once every you know three months or six months or a year whatever it is, right? Like I have these um, customized overlays that I use to build Kubernetes manifests um, for testing things in Kubernetes. And um, I don't have to use them very often, but uh, you know, I, I took the time to write the customized overlays. And because I don't use them very often, uh, then I often will come back to it and be like, okay, now how, how exactly did I need to use this overlay or this JSON patch or whatever the case may be is, right? So what I ended up doing was adding a, a readme to explain to myself, to future self, right? How to use these customized overlays in the event that I came back in six months or a year or whatever the case may be, and uh, and had to do these things again. I would I would have you know remembered or helped myself remember this is how you use this tool that you created to do this thing that you don't do very often, right? But that does need to get done. I'm just curious, you know, what you what you think about that? Yeah, it's funny you mentioned that. Um, so I I did a recent engagement, uh, a professional service engagement for a customer. And uh, um, it was around kind of HashiCorp vault and uh, um, then the helping them kind of use infrastructure as code, i.e. Terraform to essentially do the whole kind of configuration management or automate vault. Um, but inherently what came with that was also guiding them around best practices of version control and Git. And um, the, the quickest way I was able to bring them up to speed or, or really kind of take them to a good proficiency was using things like... Um, commit webhooks, right? Pre-commit webhooks using um, things like uh, um, uh, automated uh, scripts that wouldn't add in the Jira ID within your Git commit message. Um, also GitHub Actions. I, I love GitHub Actions. I, I'm a big fan of it. Um, but with GitHub Actions and having the whole marketplace, you're able to, so with the whole Terraform module and how we did the whole Terraform module development is that even with the GitHub Actions, you could have, say, when a... Um, CRCD pipeline piece where when, when the kid uh, the, when the code is merged into the main branch, it would go ahead and do a whole git release. It would do a change log uh, based on your conventional commits, and then um, it would also add in um, your kind of release notes uh, as, as part of that git. Essentially, the point I'm trying to make is that all of these hygiene and when you're coming back to the documentation, then we can take add, add that further by saying actually we can even automate those right and automate those actions and steps. Uh, within your CI/CD pipeline, within your say, uh, uh, within code itself, within using uh, um, Git hooks, so it it it's about taking that first step. And once you've taken that first step, everything will, as long as the mindset is there to adopt it, it will just get easier. That's a that's an awesome example. Thank you, Adil, for for sharing that. Um, and uh, and and. I love that you mentioned mindset because mindset is is so incredibly important. But again, mindset is like something we could spend an entire podcast talking about. And fortunately, you know, now we're talking about this idea of software development tools and techniques and practices that other disciplines should consider adopting. Um, but for for our next part of our discussion, I want to want to take that topic and sort of turn it on its head. And um, I want to you know I want to think about like are there recommendations that you hear people make but you really disagree with that recommendation. Like, let me give you an example from my, from, from my, from sort of my perspective or my own experience, right? Um, I often hear, you know, experts, quote unquote experts, I'm making air quotes, but you can't see it. Uh, I hear people saying that everyone should learn a programming language because in the end, we're all going to end up being software developers. So, you know, go learn programming language. 
And, and I just, I don't, I don't agree with that. Like, um, I'm not convinced that that's always going to be the case for all people. And now I'm not against learning a programming language. I'm in the process of learning Go. Um, and uh, I'm sure there are instances and, and I, there have been instances where knowing Go has been useful. And I'm sure, especially in network engineering context, there are going to be uh, instances and times and situations where knowing Python would, would be helpful. Right. But, um, you know, it's, it, I don't think it's necessarily going to apply to everybody. Right. So are there things like that where you hear these recommendations being made and then your response is just like, nah, I don't agree with that. It's, it's funny you say that because I, being a, a, a former network engineer, uh, when I was going into network automation, the, the, uh, this 2014, but still uh, the obvious uh, at the time, the obvious kind of uh, answers were learn Python or learn programming, like low-level programming. And I, I've been burned by that, as in that I've, I found myself getting to a deep rabbit hole and finding that I wasn't adding value quick enough or because for me, especially given that, I, you know, I didn't come from a computer science background, even when I was doing network, I came from a cabling background. So this, the learning curve was quite steep for me. Um, and uh, I ended up just, you know, really uh, focusing on adopting Ansible uh, and uh, uh, not really do it, trying to do anything too fancy with Ansible either. I don't think I'm proficient enough at all in any of these kind of uh, first-class programming languages, whether it's Go or Python. Oh, I've even taken paid courses with them, and I still don't feel confident enough to be able to write a, a, a script or, 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 or some kind of software. Um, but, you know, put me on uh, using Terraform or Ansible or Ginger 2 and whatever, I'll, I'll do it, and I'll even confident enough to say that I can help push something uh, release into, into production. Where the point I'm trying to make is the most value I've found is in software development practices, software development mindset as well, rather, actually. So how do you can be, become lean and agile even within the networking practices? And um, I've had some resistance like recently, I say recently, as in like when I've made that transition away from actually dropping Python and focusing more towards those practices and tools, I've advocated to my, my peers as that, hey, don't, don't go into learning too too much of that. You're going to go into the weeds. And in essence, I still feel, and I'm going to say this in public as well, that network automation, I feel that is, is that has a finite life. You know, there's going to be a point where all of this will be integrated with the application centric development and application driven. So the investment really should be enough to be able to give yourself a mindset and stepping stone to then actually start moving up the stack. And uh, so I echo your opinion on that piece and I've, I've lived through that if anything you know learn from that the other thing I was going to say is, that, is the other side of the spectrum I've recently heard this whole kind of notion of no ops and how um, in, in, uh, using a front end or even Terraform or front end for uh, uh, any of the code by just presenting with a GUI and then a lot of people investing in whether it's a Django framework or some kind of web framework where to provide a point and click and I feel that that takes away the essence of um, when we say self-service, we're, we're, we're misconstruing or you know, we're construing this word of self-service and thinking it's something, something like service now with a click, click, click and self-service here, done. But why so if a developer has, has been application, whether it's a developer or a network engineer, whoever, are in the practice of developing and why should they leave their IDE? How can we enable them to do self-service with the added guardrails without having to give them a web UE. So I'm, you know, by concept, I'm against that. And I've heard of some tools like Harness or Refactor. I mean, full disclaimer, I've not used them. So I, I can't comment the, the, the quality of it. But 
uh, you know, I'm I question the concept, uh, rather I question the value add that comes with the the, 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 the value proposition that's been provided here. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. I think um, I, I guess in, in short, I'll just say I I totally agree with you regarding your your statement around the concept of self service, and I also think that self service should be as frictionless as possible to the audiences or, or audience involved, right? So it's, it's one thing to offer a web-based GUI or even, you know, a native GUI. And, and some audiences are going to find that useful, sure. But there are also audiences that would prefer a CLI method or might prefer uh, an API or integration with some tool. You know, like this is something I pushed for hard in, in previous roles with um, other organizations. You know, I would, they would, hey, look at this great GUI that we've got for this, you know, thing that we built. And and I'd be like, well, this this you know this GUI is fantastic, right? And I'm sure this addresses some portion of our user base. But you know, why aren't we offering Ansible playbooks or Terraform modules or support for PowerShell or, or something else that'll make it easier for folks to consume this thing that you want everyone to consume? Like this GUI that you're offering only addresses oh, a yes. subset of our potential audience. We need to be looking at other ways. Oh and, my god! And self service takes takes the shape of more than just you know, uh, some sort of GUI, right? So yeah, I, I totally get what you're, it, what you're saying. It's funny because that was maybe one of my frustrations with networking vendors. Uh, and maybe this is uh, up until recent, I, I would say, but you know, um, when I started to go full on with the whole kind of Terraform and, and, and it seemed the, the, uh, uh, nature of the, all of these providers, um, I remember where, um, I was, uh, in my previous role, uh, speaking with the networking team and they wanted me to speak to a, a, a certain vendor, networking vendor. And I asked about the automation and they, their answer was, we have APIs. I'm like, really? It's not enough to just simply just say, yeah, you're going to provide an API. And I thought, we're network engineers, we're not developers, right? What we need is a telephone provider or, or an Ansible playbook or an Ansible module. I, I would even go as far as saying, not just an Ansible module, but even a, a repo code to show how does an Ansible playbook look like in this context. And the same for Terraform as well, right? Because at the end of the day, anything, as you say, lowering the barrier entry. But you know, if I was to echo what you're saying around, uh, it's just not enough to just simply provide whether it's a GUI, um, but having various different formats available for those various different target audience. I mean, I understand that a GUI may be, uh, but at the end of the day, even with a GUI, I would say that, I would argue that it's a, it's a temporary solution until you've built up capabilities of that art target audience to then start moving on to towards being a, more of a power user. Yeah, I think, uh, I, absolutely. I think you and I are very aligned on, on this particular point. So uh, I think we are, we're, we're thinking much the same way. Um, all right. So we're, we're nearing the uh, end of our time together. Unfortunately, I've really enjoyed our conversation, but uh, I got to wrap up. So Adil, do you have some online contact information you want to share with listeners, you know, Twitter handle, blog URL, something like that, in the event that listeners would like to connect with you online. Sure. Uh, so on, on Twitter, um, uh, the only only one I'm active on is uh, uh, so dev, DevOps underscore Adil. That's uh, A-D-E-L. And um, we, I, I'm also a co-host uh, of uh, our um, HashiCast uh, podcast. Um, we've kind of have a spin-off series called Keeping It Secure. So myself and DevOps Rob, uh, we, we're both kind of host and talk about uh, new ways of security thinking uh, in the cloud and, and what does that look like nowadays and, and stuff like that. So uh, feel free to reach out on that. Uh, that's also at Keeping It Secure, I believe. <laughs> I need to remember that on Twitter, um, at Keeping It Secure and also uh, uh, at DevOps underscore Adil. 
Fantastic. Awesome. Thank you so much, Adil. And listeners, I'll be sure to capture uh, you know, links um, in the show notes so that you can follow up on any resources uh, or links that Adil has mentioned. Um, so Adil, this has been a fantastic conversation. Really, really enjoyed it. Thank you so much for jumping on and sharing your experience and your perspective on today's topic. Great. Thank you. All right. That's it for this episode, listeners. I want to thank you once again for joining me for this episode of the Full Stack Journey podcast. I'd love to hear your feedback on this episode or on any episode of the podcast. So please feel free to reach out to me anytime. You can contact me via the podcast's Twitter account, uh, which is at FSJ Podcast on Twitter, or you can reach me directly using my personal account at Scott underscore Low, also on Twitter. Either way is fine. I would love to hear from you, love to hear your thoughts and your feedback on the show, ideas for other shows. If you have something you're interested in hearing about, a technology you're interested in us talking about or some other topic, feel free to let me know. This has been the Full Stack Journey Podcast, where too much learning is never enough.